This man receiveth sinners. What a sneering remark it was by the scribes and Pharisees who utterly despised the Lord Jesus Christ. And the fact that Jesus would sit down and that he would eat with publicans and sinners only proved to them that he was a fraud, that he was a false teacher in their estimation. In their religion, in their structure of thinking, there was no place for sinners and for harlots and for publicans. They thought very highly of themselves. They said, Lord, we thank Thee that we are not like those people, as we know that from the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. And yet they didn't realize that they could not have honored Jesus more than by that sneering remark. Because in that simple statement, they expressed the very heart of the gospel. This man, actually in the Greek it says, this one, they did not even deign to call him by his name. That's how utterly despised they despised him. This one. And yet that's exactly what the eternal Son of God became. He, the eternal Son of God, in the fullness of time, He became this one. He humbled Himself. He emptied Himself. He made Himself of no reputation to be the Savior of sinners. And that's indeed who He is. This man receiveth sinners. What a precious statement. What a fullness is expressed in those words. How we see in that simple statement the two dominant themes of Scripture, sin and grace. The congregation, we will never understand the true nature of sin in all of its vileness unless we view it against the background of God's grace. And we will never marvel at the grace of God in Christ unless we view it against the black background of sin. And that's why those two things have always have to be kept together. Always. Because only when we keep them together can we truly understand the essence of what it means to be a sinner on the one hand, but also what it means to be a recipient of God's grace in and through the Lord Jesus Christ, who does indeed receive sinners, and who even eats with them, who even has fellowship with them. And so what does Christ do? Rather than defending himself against this allegation, he responds to it by telling his audience a threefold parable. Because, I don't know if you've noticed it, it says that he spoke this parable singular. Singular. It's ultimately one story. And as we read it together, I'm sure that even the children picked up on the theme of that one parable. It speaks about something that is lost and something that is found. A sheep that is lost. A sheep that cannot possibly find its way back unless the shepherd finds it. A coin that is lost. A coin that cannot be recovered unless the one who owned the coin goes out of his way to find that coin. 
But the capstone of that threefold parable is what is known as the parable of the prodigal son. Matthew Poole calls it the most famous of all the parables. And I think justifiably so. And actually, congregation, it's a misnomer. It's not the story about the prodigal son, but the focal point, as we will see this morning, the focal point is on the father of that prodigal son. Christ, by this story, makes a most amazing and astounding statement about who his father is, who sent him into this world to do his father's business. And so with God's help, we're going to focus on a story that we, need so well, that we know so well, and yet a story that is so rich in instruction, truths that we need to be reminded of over and over again. And so we're going to focus on the gracious father of the prodigal son. That's what this parable is all about. Three simple points, but boys and girls, you will be able to relate to. Three simple points. First of all, a rejected father. A rejected father rejected by a wicked son. Secondly, a forgiving father. A father who forgives his repenting and returning son. And thirdly, a restoring father who goes out of his way that his son understands that he has fully forgiven him and that he is fully restored into his father's favor. So the gracious father of the prodigal son, a rejected father, a forgiving father, and a restoring father. Congregation, we are all so familiar with the details of this story, and I can be rather brief about it, but yet certain things need to be highlighted. So what Jesus does, he tells a story that would get the attention of the scribes and Pharisees. He tells a story that would be so utterly offensive to them that it would jar them awake and confront them with the reality of who Christ is, with the reality of the gospel. And so the Lord Jesus deliberately paints the picture of a sinner who in their estimation would be the vilest of all men, the vilest of all men. First of all, a young man who had the brazen audacity to ask for his inheritance before his father died. He basically said to his father, I can't wait till you're dead. I want my money now. Can you imagine how painful that must have been for that father? Secondly, a young man who then goes and utterly wastes his father's inheritance, who lives an utterly vile and wicked and contemptuous life, and thirdly, a young man who ends up as a keeper of the swine, a keeper of pigs. Boys and girls, you know that in Israel, pigs were unclean animals. 
They were forbidden to eat it. And to actually have to be in the company of swine, to be a keeper of swine, was the worst thing imaginable that could happen to a Jewish man. So at every level, what he did to his father, what he did with his substance, where he ended up being would have a young man that would have been utterly abhorrent to the mind of the scribes and Pharisees. And yet Jesus did so for a reason. It's very, very noteworthy that this whole parable revolves around a father. Because congregation, ultimately what Christ is describing here is a picture of who we all are by nature. And what this parable emphasizes is first of all who we once were created as the sons and daughters of the living God. But it also emphasizes what God's ultimate goal is in redeeming sinners and that is to bring us back to himself to bring us back into an everlasting father-child relationship with himself. And so what makes Adam's sin so heinous, it wasn't just that they disobeyed God's precepts, but by doing so they showed their utter disregard for their heavenly father. They treated their father as a liar, by believing Satan's lie. And worst of all, and that's what we see here, what made this so ugly, what, what this young man did was so ugly in light of who his father was. He despised his father's person. He despised his father's love. He trampled upon that heart. And that's what we have done in Adam. To be a sinner is ultimately to be a despiser of God the God who created us. To be a sinner is ultimately to be a despiser of God's love. That's what makes sin so vile. That's what makes it so wicked. That's what makes sin so highly offensive. And that's why we should never speak lightly about sin. And I include myself. Far too often we speak lightly about sin without stopping to think of what we are talking about. And Christ here sets before us sin in all of its vileness, in all of its ugliness, in all of its wickedness. So this young man made a wicked choice, and that resulted in a wicked deed. Because not only does he have the audacity to ask for his inheritance, once he gets, he has the money in his hands, he then willfully removes himself from his father's presence. Willfully, he moves to a location where he could not even think about his father. He went to a far country. He wanted to move away as far as he possibly could. It reminds me of a young man in the Netherlands, born and raised like you were, boys and girls, and yet when he became a young man, he utterly despised his upbringing, despised religion, wanted nothing to do with it. So what did he do? He took a globe, he put his finger on the Netherlands, and he said, I want to move as far away as I possibly can from this country. I want to move as far away 
from anything that reminds me of this God. And he moved to New Zealand, to a far country, far away from God. That's what this young man did. That's what we have done. That's what we have done in Adam. As sinners by nature, we live in a far country. By nature. It is true of all of us what we read in Job 21 verse 14. Therefore they say unto God, depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. A congregation, we may not have lived like this young man, or we may not be living like this young man, but ultimately that's who we are by nature. That's why you'll hear me often say, don't say so quickly, I'm unconverted. Because when you say that, that word itself, you are indicting yourself. When you say, I'm unconverted, that means I have managed until this day to ignore God. I have managed to ignore His Word. I have managed to ignore His voice. You are, but by your life, you are simply saying, Lord, depart from us, for we desire not the knowledge of thy ways. That's why it's so serious to be unconverted, because that unconverted state is the manifestation of a heart that is hostile to God and that is hostile to His Word. And what does He do in that far country? Well, the, the Word of God tells us, and there He wasted His substance in riotous living. Riotous living. Sometimes we say that people are having a riot. Well, he had a, he had a riot, if you will, in that far country. He lived it up. He gave, he gave in to all the sinful lusts of his flesh. He indulged himself in every conceivable way. He ate, he drank, he kept company with harlots, you name it. He showed an utter contempt for his father. Because he used what his father had given him, his inheritance, he wasted it. And again, that's our picture congregation. By nature, we waste our substance. It is God in whom we live, move, and have our being. And yet by nature, we have no use for that God, and we, we disregard him. And we waste our time, we waste our talents, we waste our energy, we waste our substance in riotous living. Are there still any here who are ultimately living that kind of life? You say, but pastor, I'm not living like that. I'm not living like this man. I'm not a partier. I'm not a party goer. I'm not a, I'm not a drinker. I don't keep company with harlots. That may very well be. But remember what Jesus says about the human heart. He's saying by nature, that heart of yours is desperately wicked, and that heart of yours is inclined towards all of this. Oh, in Isaiah 53, it says it so powerfully, we have turned everyone to his own way. And what happens? The young man discovers that the price we pay for sin is so very, very bitter. Sin 
is maybe sweet in the mouth. That's how the devil deceives men. Sweet in the mouth. But the devil is just like a fisherman who hides the hook in the bait. The fish doesn't realize it. Oh, that bait is so attractive. And he goes for it. And then the hook gets a hold of him. That's what happened to this young man. Finally, his money runs out. And suddenly, he has no more friends. They were opportunity friends. They realized this young man is generous. And they, they flocked around him as long as he paid the bill. And then everything runs out. It says, already has spent all, verse 14. Then there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. He ran out of options, we would say. All of a sudden, he had nothing. No money, no friends, no roof over his head, nothing. He began to be in want. That means all of a sudden he was faced with the consequences of his evil deeds. Faced with the consequences of having forsaken his father and having wasted all of his substance in riotous living. But the sad part of it is that at this point he does not yet recognize that he is responsible for all of this. And so also in our culture, there's so many men and women who are living broken lives. They are in want. They, have end, they end up in the gutter through addiction to substance addiction, to immoral living, indulging in the things of the flesh. And their lives are ruined. Their lives are broken. They are in want. And yet so many fail to realize the cause of all of this. And this young man initially did not realize it either. Because what does he do in response to his want? Ah, he seeks for a solution in that far country rather than returning to his father. Because it says in verse 15, and he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country. And he sent him into the fields to feed the swine. What a sad story. This young man is still not broken. He's still digging in his heels. He's still determined to stay in that far country. Oh, congregation, that's who we are. We are stubborn sinners. Stubborn in our pursuit of sin until God, by His power, breaks that stubbornness. And what a wretched situation he finds himself in. It was so bad, so bad. It was one thing to have to take care of swine. How offensive to a Jewish boy who came from a very wealthy family. His father had many servants. He came from a wealthy home. And now this, ending up with the swines. It couldn't get any worse. And then we read, had he would have fain filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat. That's how hungry, that's how desperate he became. That he would have gladly eaten what the swine were eating. And so many in this broken world of ours are trying to find the solution in the husks that this world is offering. 
How many counselors, so-called counselors, are there not who are dealing with people whose lives are broken and who give them husks rather than the precious Word of God? Oh, what a grievous display this is of man's radical depravity. And that's exactly Christ's point. He is painting for us a radical picture, congregation, because that's how radical our depravity is. Ultimately, what we see here, that this man who came from this this noteworthy home was reduced to the level of the beasts. It was so bad that they, the, the beast, the swine, had more than they hid. They had something to eat, and he did not. That's the depth of our fall congregation. That's why I mentioned with Christmas, it's not accidental that Jesus was born in a stable, in a place where animals are housed. He was laid in the feeding trough of an animal. That's by God's design that shows us the depth of our fall. That's what makes our fall so wretched. We who were created in God's image to tower above all of creation as God's masterpiece, as a result of the fall, we have fallen to the level of the beasts. That's how bad it is. That's how deep our fall is. That's how deep the Lord Jesus had to descend into the depth of our fall to bring us back to God. That, of course, what is the, that's the ultimate goal of this parable, of the story he's telling. And then comes the turning point, verse 17. And when he came to himself, he said, How many hired servants of my fathers have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. He came to himself. That's a Hebrew expression that describes repentance. He came to his senses. It was like a light went on. Suddenly he awakened out of this awful stupor in which he was. He came to himself. He came to grips with himself. He He came to grips with the circumstances that he found himself in. It was so important. What is such an important detail of this story is to realize what brings about the change. What brings about the change? What brings about the change, congregation, it's very clear that suddenly his father comes back to mind. His wretched condition compels him to think of what he has left. To think of his father who is obviously from this story a very kind and gracious man. No doubt he began to remember how his father had bid him farewell. You can be assured that he left a weeping father, a father whom he had so deeply and so greatly offended. And that's a very important detail here, congregation. Because that's what ultimately compels him to return. He Not just to get a job, not just to be delivered from his hunger. No, it's his father. He says, I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven. I have sinned against God and before thee. Because So in other words, he realized 
the cause of all of his trouble, he realized why he was in want. It's because he had sinned. He had sinned against God, and he had sinned against his Father. So what we have here is an illustration of what I have mentioned to you on several occasions when I've talked to you about repentance. Repentance is not, as it is sometimes erroneously stated, a turning from sin and a turning to God. It's the other way around. True repentance is a turning to God, and it's that turning to God that will motivate me to turn from sin. In true repentance, God becomes real. And when God becomes real, sin becomes real. And that will compel us to break with our sins. Turning to God, turning away from sin. That's why God says in Ezekiel 33, verse 11, Turn ye, turn ye, for why will you die? Sinner, turn to me, return to me, come and face me. And what compels this young man to leave that far country and to make the journey back home is because his father has come into sharp focus. So we read, I will arise and I will go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. Oh, what an essential component this is of repentance. Not just realizing that you have sinned. Not realizing all the trouble you are in because of your sin. But to realize the cause of it all. To say with David in Psalm 51, and that's what this young man was prepared to say against thee. Thee only have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. And so it is. That's how God still works savingly. In that sense, all of God's children have this in common. All of God's children have this in common. There came a moment in their life, in your life, that you came to yourself that it's as if the light went on and you began to see yourself the way God sees you. And you began to realize what it means to be a sinner to be a transgressor, to have sinned against heaven and against even our fellow men. Then sin becomes real. But what's beautiful is that in in true conversion, it doesn't remain with that acknowledgement. Something happens. Because now that, that awareness and that desire to be reconciled to his father compels him to say farewell to that far country. He arises. And he goes, and he's determined to say to his father, Father, what I've done is so awful. What I have done is so wicked. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just make me as one of the hired servants. Just let me be a day servant. Let me be a day laborer. As long as I can be near to thee, I'd rather be a day laborer than spend one more day in this far, far country. That tells you that this was not superficial. That tells you how deeply this young man realized what he had done. This tells you what it means when we come to ourselves. 
Oh, when we see ourselves the way God sees us. You see, then we will take our proper place before God. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the meek who know their proper place before God. And then the story dramatically changes. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him. His father saw him long before he saw his father. I could easily imagine, boys and girls, that the closer he came to his parental home, the more he felt the awful wretchedness of what he had done. The more he realized how he had offended his father, how he had despised his father's love, how what he had done. I'm sure that just like the publican, he probably did not even dare to look up. He had no idea of of whether his father would even be willing to talk to him. Because you see, the the Pharisees, they had a a parable uh, that actually said the very opposite. Edersheim, the well-known Jewish uh, commentator, the Christian um, expert on Jewish history and custom, he says we have in one of the oldest rabbinical works a parable exactly the reverse of this. When the son of a friend is redeemed from bondage, not as his son, but as a slave. That's it. So he had no way of knowing how his father would receive him. But this beautiful statement, his father saw him. His father saw him when he was yet a great way off. So in other words, this repenting boy, this returning boy, is returning to a waiting father. A father who had never forgotten his boy. A father who may have daily been looking for his son to return. And of course, this is a parable. But the whole point that Christ wants to make, he wants to show the character of his father. He wants the people to understand the reason I receive sinners and I eat with them because that's who my father is. And I have come in this world to make my father known. I have come forth out of his bosom to declare him unto us. Oh, Christ wants us to know that God is a God who waits to be gracious to sinners who longs for sinners to return to him, the God against whom we have sinned, the God against whom we have forsaken. And of course, in this parable, we do not see any evidence of the father actually drawing that boy to himself. But that's exactly what happens when God works savingly by his Spirit in our hearts, you see. It is God who, by His grace, He draws us to Himself. He draws us irresistibly to bring us, ultimately, to His only begotten Son, in whom He can be gracious to us, in whom He can pardon us. Oh, it is the picture of a God who delights in mercy, who delights to be gracious, and who has no pleasure in the death of sinners. And therefore, 
if by the grace of God we know personally and experientially what that means to take refuge to Christ. Oh, you are so indebted to the drawing love of God who drew you with the cords of his love, who drew you out of that far country, who shed abroad his love into your soul. Because you see, that's so important. This young man breaks with sin. He turns his back because the love for his father is rekindled in his heart. That's what makes the true believer break with sin. That's it. That's what we call evangelical repentance. And then what do we read? His father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck. He kissed him. What an incredible sight that must have been. This man was a, a well-known, respected, stately landowner. And it was totally beneath his dignity to do something like that. His dignity would have demanded that that young man would come to him and that that young man would grovel in the dirt because of what he had done. But not this father. This father forgets all protocol and he runs, he runs towards his returning son and he wraps his arms around him and he fell on his neck and he kissed him. You know what it says, boys and girls, in the Greek? He kept on kissing him. He smothered him. He smothered him with kisses. This young man who, who had no doubt as he walked, he rehearsed his confession over and over again. He didn't get a chance. His father kissed his mouth shut. He didn't have a chance to confess his sin. What a picture this is of God. Notice what the father did not require. You can imagine how this young man returned. He must have walked in, in tattered rags. And he must have had the smell, the stench of the pigsty. His father could have said, hold it. Before I talk to you, before we have any conversation." You first have to go take a shower. You have to clean yourself up. And you have to put on some decent clothes. And, and when you clean up your act, then we will talk. That's the religion of the flesh. That was the religion of the, of the Pharisees. That's what we are all inclined to think, that we have to make ourselves better. I cannot tell you how often in my ministry I've talked to people and I've asked them, well, why have you not come to Lord's Supper when I felt the Lord was working? He says, well, I don't feel I'm good enough. Oh, I said, well, then you don't understand the gospel yet. You're not good enough. Nobody is good enough. This father did not say to this young man, you first have to clean yourself up. He did not even rebuke him. No rebuke. What right he had to rebuke his son? No rebuke. All he had for that young man is overwhelming love. That's the God of the Bible. Christ is saying, that's who I represent. If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. That's who my Father is. I have come. I have come. So that prodigal sons and daughters can return 
and can be reconciled with God. And so that father wraps his arm around his filthy son. He wraps his arm around him and he smothers him with love. This is who God is. This is the wonder of the gospel congregation. This is what the gospel, the gospel says, you do not have to first improve yourself. You do not have to meet all kinds of qualifications. You do not have to jump through all kinds of hoops in order to come to Christ. The gospel says, sinner, you may come. You must come as you are. You must come with all your filth. You must come with the stench of your sin. You must come and I will in no wise cast you out. If you come to me, I will wrap my arms around you. And dear believer, tell me if that's not so. Tell me if you have not experienced something of that amazing love in your life. Oh, what a beautiful illustration. That the gospel is unconditional. Unconditional. No conditions to be met. If if you've never come, if you've never come to this Christ, oh, let this encourage you to come. This is who God is. He is waiting to be gracious. He will receive you. He will pardon you. He will embrace you in his love. No matter how deeply you have have sunk, no matter how vile the stench of your life is, God will receive you. There's only one thing that's not in this story. And that's the wonder of the cross, congregation. Because in order for God to wrap his arms around you in love, he had to reject his only begotten son. His son who lived in the embrace of his father. But on the cross of Calvary, he was forsaken by his father. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the answer is so that God can now wrap his arms around a vile sinner like me. Because how can that be? How can a, and here too we have this this, this stately, highly esteemed man dressed in expensive clothes. He, what? He defiled himself by wrapping his arms around his son, but he did so happily. And a holy God can embrace an unholy sinner because his son His son was forsaken by him so that God can now freely embrace us in the arms of his love. Ah, you see, even though it doesn't say it, but boys and girls, I am sure that as his father was kissing him, that boy was weeping, weeping on his father's shoulder. Never, never did he so feel the vileness of his sin. Never did he see that sin was so ugly when his father kissed him and when his father embraced him. And congregation, our forefathers say this all the time, we will never see the nature of sin in its true vileness until we experience the love of God. That's when we see it. That's evangelical repentance. And then comes his confession. Father, I've sinned against heaven and in thy sight. And am no more worthy to be called thy son. 
Well, it's amazing. That's our third point, a restoring father. The father acts as if he didn't hear what his son said. Instead, instead of responding, he said, but the father said to his servants, bring forth the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Very simply, I, I, you know, commentators go into detail what all of this symbolism means. And I think we can safely say this, that the father wanted to show the son that he again accepted him as a worthy son and gave him an appropriate robe that would reflect that. A very expensive robe to cover his rags. Probably the, the ring contained the seal of the family to show that the father accepted him back into the family and probably the shoes to indicate that he would not have to be a slave because in that culture, slaves and servants, they, were, they walked bare feet. And the father provides him with shoes. But what does all of this mean? What is the father doing here? Not only does he show by kissing him and embracing him that he has completely forgiven him everything he has done, but that he wants to reassure him that he fully restores him, that he is restored in his favor. What a beautiful, what a beautiful illustration this is of, of the gospel congregation. And so he goes out of his way. He does not want his son to be in any doubt that he has fully, fully received him back. That's the God of salvation congregation. God is not a God who is reluctantly gracious. God is not a God who withholds from his children that blessed knowledge that we are reconciled with God. God is a God who delights in, in, in communicating through the gospel to his children what he has accomplished for them in Christ. He wants us to understand who Christ is, what he has done for us. He wants his children to be assured of their, of, that he has accepted them. He wants them to be assured of his pardon. He wants them to be assured that they are restored in his favor. Again, that's why Isaiah 40 begins this way. That's why God commissions his servants. You must comfort my people. You must speak comfortably to my people, to Jerusalem. You must tell them that their warfare is accomplished, that their iniquity is pardoned, that they have received double for all of their sins. That's God's desire. That's his character. God does not want his children to live in darkness. He does not want them to live in doubt. That's why we have such a sacred responsibility as God's servants to preach God's word rightly lest we be guilty of misrepresenting the character of God, which is what the Pharisees and the scribes did. And then he says, and bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. Now he calls for a, a celebration. So we have reconciliation, restoration, and now rejoicing. Three R's, boys and girls, you can write that down. Reconciliation, restoration, and now rejoicing. That's what redemption is all about. This fatted calf, so especially wealthy homes, would always have a fatted calf on hand. 
in case there was an occasion for a special celebration. Some commentators suggest that the father always hoped that his son would return and that he had been putting this fatted calf aside for the day when his son would come. But especially in a, in a wealthy home like this, uh, there would be these massive parties sometimes, these eating events, these celebrations, and they would then kill the fatted calf and serve it to their guests. And the father said this, this is an occasion for us to celebrate. This is an occasion for us to kill the fatted calf and to be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be merry. And if you paid attention to reading this morning, in the first part of the parable, there was joy. There is joy in heaven over one sinner who returns. Then with the second part of it, we're told the angels are rejoicing in heaven. There's joy in heaven because the angels are rejoicing. But now we find out why the angels are rejoicing. The angels are rejoicing because God the Father is rejoicing. He is rejoicing, rejoicing over every sinner that returns. What an encouragement that is, congregation. And that's why, again, if, you are, if you're troubled by your sin, and even as a believer, perhaps you're backslidden, and you say to yourself, how shall I return? After what I've done, how can I expect God to be gracious to me when I have so dishonored Him, and I have so grieved Him, and have departed from Him? Oh, He so rejoices. It so delights Him when you return. It so delights him when you come in all your wretchedness and you take refuge to his only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, how he rejoices. And dear believer, he rejoices when you come again and again and you return unto him. Oh, there is joy in heaven because the angels are rejoicing. And the angels are rejoicing is because God the Father is rejoicing. And of course, when we look at the gospel, and we cannot help but think of the Lamb of God who was slain, slain in the fullness of time in order to prepare a spiritual feast for the people of God. That's what the Lord's Supper is. In a few weeks, we hope to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And so the Lord's Supper is, is given by God so that we, his redeemed sinners, saved prodigal sons and daughters, that we could rather gather around his people, around his table, to feast upon the fatted calf, to feast upon the Lamb of God, to rejoice in what God has provided for your salvation. That's God's desire. That's God's desire. So beautifully expressed in Isaiah 35, verse 10. It says that the ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with songs and everlasting joy upon their heads. They shall obtain joy and gladness and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Isaiah 61, verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. And here it comes. Think of this parable. 
for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of his righteousness. That's it. That's what God does to wretched sinners that take refuge to his son. He robes us in the robe of the righteousness which his only begotten son has merited. And that's the privilege of all who have put their trust in Christ. And so, and God grieves over it. But so often we live, we live below our privileges. The God of salvation who gave everything to redeem you, who gave his only begotten son to save you, so much wants you to experience the wonder of it in your own soul. He so much wants you to rejoice in that salvation. That's what David lost when he sinned. It's what he so longed for. Psalm 51, Lord, restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. And that's also true in this story. Even though this is a powerful gospel illustration, it's an encouragement for backslidden believers as well. If you are backslidden, don't wait any longer. Come. Come in all your wretchedness. Come. Come as you are. Confess, Father, I've sinned against thee. I've grieved thee. And he will so readily receive you. So let's wrap this up. And so what we see here, this blessed, blessed sequence, I already mentioned there. We have forgiveness as the foundation of the gospel. We have restoration as the goal of the gospel. And we have fellowship as the experience of the gospel. Let me repeat that. Forgiveness as the foundation of the gospel. Restoration as the goal of the gospel. And fellowship as the experience of the gospel. Jesus said, I am come that they might have life, and that they might have it more abundantly. Oh, congregation, my words are so poor to express the riches that are found in this story. And I agree with Matthew Paul. This is the greatest of all the parables. Jesus said to the Pharisees, there's my answer. Yes, I receive sinners and I eat with them because that's who my father is. That's who he is. He receives sinners and he will eat with them. He will feast with them on that fatted calf that's to be found in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. What reason do you have not to return? What reason do you have not to come to this God who so freely offers salvation in his only begotten Son who is saying to you in the gospel, sinner, there are no obstacles. They've all been removed. There are no obstacles. The only obstacle is your own unbelief. That's the obstacle. But I am willing to receive you. And I will in no wise cast you out. Because the Son of Man is come to seek and to save that which is lost. So let's end with that wonderful passage from Isaiah 55. Open your Bibles. Read with me. Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7. And with that we will end. 
That's the commentary, the biblical commentary on what I've tried to explain to you this morning. Isaiah 55, verse 6 and 7. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call call ye upon him while he is near. And sinner, he is near. When the gospel is preached, he is so near, so near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Father in heaven, oh, we give thee humble thanks for the glorious gospel Unveil to us in thy word. Lord, this morning we've heard about who thou art in Christ. We have had the privilege of looking into thy eternal heart of love. We have heard the heartbeat of a triune God. A God who delights in mercy and who is ready to pardon even the vilest of sinners. Oh, may this encourage us to come to Thee without delay, without further ado, to come to Thee for the first time or by renewal, to take hold even of this message and say, Lord, I've heard this morning that Thou art willing to receive the vilest of all men. So, Lord, I come. I come. Be gracious to me. And, Lord, we know, we've just read it, that when we do return unto thee, thou wilt have mercy upon us, and thou wilt abundantly pardon. And so we thank thee for the unspeakable gift of thy Son. And Lord, wilt thou, by thy Spirit, be the after-preacher, and apply to our hearts and souls what thou hast communicated by thy word. Bless our instruction to our young people following this service, And bring us here again this evening hour. In Jesus' name we pray.